Well, good morning again. Back into our study of Revelation. This is now the Antichrist part five. So we're going to finish talking about the Antichrist this week. But it's been an interesting journey as we've been going through the Old Testament and learning about not just the Antichrist, but the kingdom that he will rule and the events that will unfold in the end times. So I'm going to start with a couple of questions and a couple of quotes from a guy called Ron Matson. He's the guy who heads up K House, Koinonia House. So the first question is, why study Revelation? And he says, Revelation is a lens that puts the entire Bible into focus. The lens is focused on the person of Jesus Christ and his destiny, or second coming, is imminent. This is a book of victory. We are overcomers. We are the ultimate winners in the game of life. I read the ending. We win. (laughs) And the second question is, why do many find it difficult to study the book of Revelation? He says, One of the reasons this book strikes us as strange is because of our lack of understanding concerning the Old Testament. The book of Revelation consists of 404 verses that contain over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. So you can see that if you don't know the Old Testament well, you're going to have a lot of problems reading the book of Revelation. So as you go through your Bible and you learn what's in there, it'll become more and more familiar and more easy to understand and interpret. So how do we go through the book of Revelation? Well, we simply look for the symbol in the Old Testament. It's usually in the Old Testament. We learn what the literal meaning is, and then we go back to Revelation and insert the literal meaning of the symbol back into the text of Revelation. It's easy, right? Most of it's easy. Some of it's still confusing. But the more you know and read your Bible, the easier Revelation will be to understand. But that's the basics of it. Look at the symbol, go back, find it where else it's used in the Bible, find its literal meaning, what it's actually talking about. And like the sun, moon and stars, is talking about who? The nation of Israel. Yeah. So you just, again, in that section in Revelation, you just substitute the sun, moon and stars with Israel and off you go. Okay. Now, something I haven't done for a while is... Revelation 119, it's the outline of the book of Revelation. So at the start, we do this every single week to help us to remember the three main sections of the book of Revelation, and they are found in Revelation chapter 119. It says, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So part one is the things which you have seen and that is chapter 1, the vision of the glorified Christ. So, not Christ in the manger, not Christ on the cross, but the glorified Christ in heaven, mighty in power. Part 2, the things which are, and that's chapters 2 and 3. That's the present tense, that's the church age, that's the age we're in now. Okay, And then part 3 is the things which will take place after this, and that's chapters 4 to 22, and that includes the seven-year tribulation, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, and the new heavens and new earth. So, let's go back to Revelation 13, and just revise our chart for what we did last week. The head of gold is... Babylon, yeah. Also represented by the lion, the winged lion. The breast and arms of silver is what kingdom? Medo-Persian Empire. Also represented by the bear in chapter 7 of Daniel and in chapter 8, the ram. And then the belly and thighs of brass, which kingdom? Greece. And that's represented by, or as a leopard, in chapter 7, and the he-goat in chapter 8 of Daniel. And then, the two legs of iron, 
Roman Empire. And that's represented by this monster, this undescribable beast. And then the future kingdom is represented by the feet and toes of clay and iron mixed together. And that's the revived Roman Empire. So, over the last four weeks we've studied the Old Testament passages that describe the Antichrist, what kind of person he will be, and the things that he will do. So what have you learnt? Well, the Antichrist will be a great orator, a man of great cunning, a man who will flatter, bribe, and manipulate people to get what he wants. And it says, through his cunning he will cause deceit to prosper. So what do we know? He's going to be a great deceiver. But one who appears to be just the best leader that humanity has ever seen. A leader that we can depend upon, that we can trust to lead us out of chaos. He will be asked to lead after the chaos that will follow the rapture of the church. You imagine that your means of believers gone. You know, cars crashing, planes crashing, people mourning, people panicking. It's just going to be horrible to be left behind. And like Hitler in Germany, he'll come across as a passionate person, one who loves the people, and he'll step in as an angel of light to solve the world's problems. So the good thing is it's been really interesting and we now know the literal meaning or interpretation of most of the signs and symbols that we're going to find in Revelation 13. So what did we learn last week? The Antichrist, Satan, and the revived Roman Empire can be considered to be synonymous because, or the same because, what was that quote that I read out? The person is often the symbol of the government, and what is said of the government can be said of him. Now, what does the sand of the sea represent in chapter 13, verse 1? The Gentile nations, yep. So... The Antichrist rises up from the Gentile nations. The seven heads of the ten horns represents the end times government. And the ten toes or ten horns represent the ten kings, probably of ten nations, who will together rule the revived Roman Empire during the last seven years. That's during the tribulation. And what will these ten kings do? in those last three and a half years? Yeah, that's it. And make the Antichrist the most powerful leader this world has ever seen. We're going to get more into that today. So let's go straight into Revelation 13. Let's read verses 1 to 10. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast, that's the Antichrist, rising up out of the sea, that's the Gentile nations, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, the Antichrist. So they worshipped the Dragon, Satan, who gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, the Antichrist, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he, the Antichrist, was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and a half years or 1,260 days. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity should go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. So let's go to verse 1. Covered most of it. Daniel predicted that the final world empire would be a revived form of the four previous empires, yeah? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. Now why did Rome collapse? Just out of interest. Do you know why it collapsed? Yeah, it was moral decay. Their collapse was due to moral decay, immorality, homosexuality, all those different things. And I would like to point out that it's just like the Western countries are. They took the path that we're taking today in our Western countries. We are falling apart. The foundations of the family unit, law and order and respect, just to name a few things, are quickly being broken down. Okay, the beast in the context of Revelation 13 is the Antichrist, who is of Roman ethnicity and rises up from the Gentiles. The ten horns in verse 1 there represents the ten leaders, and the horns represent what? Power, political power. And the seven heads. Now, this is new, all right? So we're going to get into the seven heads. So to explain the seven heads, the answer is in actually the book of Revelation, a bit further down. So I'm going to put Revelation 17, 9 to 10. And it says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So, firstly, this is interesting because it has dual literal meanings. Did you notice there it said, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. So it means two things. So we'll find out what both those things are. Anyone got any idea what the seven mountains might mean? Might refer to? Put yourself back in John's time. What's it talking about? It's Rome, yeah. Have a look at this. Seven hills of Rome, east of the river Tiber, from the geographical heart of Rome, within the walls of the city. This is from Wikipedia. And you can see the seven hills and the Servian wall. That was the wall that the Romans built to defend their city. And I looked up pictures last night. It's interesting. They've still got remnants of that wall around the place. It's quite high. It's quite large. So that's the original capital of Rome, the Roman Empire. Now, the next thing, it says it is also, I'll just put verse 10 up for you so you can read it with me. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. This has caused no end of confusion to many people, but mainly because they don't have a literal interpretation of Scripture and they make it historical. But if you keep it future, look what you can get. Seven kings can also be translated as kingdoms, seven kingdoms or empires, right? And if you just take those nations that have affected Israel, you have seven nations. The first one is Egypt. The second one was Assyria. The third one was Babylon. Then the fourth one is the Medan Persian Empire. Then the Grecian Empire. And the sixth one is the Roman Empire. Now it says in verse 10, five have fallen. So five have already passed. So that's true, isn't it? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and the Medan Persia and the Grecian Empire, that's five. They're all ceased to exist, right? The sixth one, it says, one is, it's presently there. Now, this is at the time of writing, yeah? So when John wrote this, the Roman Empire was in power. Then it says, and the other has not yet come. 
and when he comes, he must continue a short time. So the seventh world empire only continues for a short time. What do you think that might correspond to? The tribulation with the revived Roman Empire, the feet of iron and clay. So yeah, it all fits quite well. As I said, kings can also be translated as kingdoms. There are seven world empires that have affected Israel. And at the time Revelation was written, the sixth kingdom was in power, the Roman Empire. It is, okay? The sixth is, and the seventh is yet to come. And when it does, we'll only last, we'll be there for a short time. Why is it only going to be there for a short time? Jesus comes back and he destroys it, yes. All right. Let's go to verse 2. Revelation 13, verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, whose feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. This is an interesting verse. So, why does God call the Antichrist a beast? Why does he just say Antichrist? Because that's his nature on the inside, yeah? Ugly, vicious, you know, cruel. A beast just wants to hunt down and destroy people, right? He'll come across as a nice guy, but he'll be a devil inside. And that's how God sees him. He sees his true character. So that's why he had these names. And these names actually mean something. These graphic names give you a good idea of what the person's like. So, the leopard, who's that? Grecian Empire, the bear, Medo-Persian, and the lioness, Babylon. So, in other words, the final world empire will be from the ruins of the Roman Empire, but there will be elements of the great power that these other empires had, the characteristics that these other empires had. So i just go through them. The lion, represented by the Babylonian Empire. Why the lion? Well, they were strong and powerful, and they were ruled by an all-powerful despotic dictator. They were the only kingdom that didn't have a, a government as such, where they have like democracy and checks and balances. They just had one man who could do what he wanted, and that describes the Antichrist. One man who could do whatever he wants. Okay? The Antichrist would be an all-powerful, despotic dictator. You can read that in Daniel. I can't remember which chapter it is now. Whoever he makes alive, he makes alive. He puts to death, he puts to death. He just do what he wants. Now, the, the bear, the Medo-Persian Empire, they would crush their enemies with overwhelming force. That's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to crush his enemies with overwhelming force. And the leopard, the Grecian Empire, remember under the leadership of Alexander the Great, they conquer the world in a very short period of time, right? Well, guess what the Antichrist is going to do? He's going to conquer the world, come to rule the world in a very short period of time. And I won't read it now. I was going to, but I won't read it now. Uh, you can read Daniel chapter 2, verses 38 to 44. Then you got the dragon. Now, who is the dragon? Satan, yep. And Revelation 12.9 tells us that it's Satan. It says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Now, in verse 2 it also says that he gave him his power. So Satan is given the Antichrist three things. And we're going to go through these three things. Because we get application from this for our personal lives. He gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So the devil gives this man, the Antichrist, Three things, his power, his throne, and great authority. So firstly, his power. Satan gives his power to the Antichrist. So the Greek word used for power here is dynamis, or dynamis, all right? And we get a word dynamite from it. It's, okay, it's powerful. It means great innate power, meaning that it comes from inside of you. It's a part of you, okay? So this is strength and power that you have on the inside. It's personal power. So Satan, think about this, Satan is giving the Antichrist his own personal power. Anything that Satan can do, 
the Antichrist can now do. Satan is the most powerful angel. He can do lots of really powerful things. He's giving that power, the innate power, to the Antichrist. Now, consider this. Acts one eight. But you, this is talking to us as Christians, right? Shall receive power. Same Greek word, dynamis. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is an application for us, all right? We know the Antichrist is going to reign and prosper because he's got this, one of the reasons he's got this power, and it enables him to do what he's put there to do, right? Well, in the same way, God lives in us, and he gives us his power, his dunamis, yeah, to do whatever he wants us to do, which includes miracles, healings, partings of seas and rivers, and many other wonderful things, right? And of course, the power to live the Christian life. So, anything Satan can do, then the Antichrist can do. He's received his power. But on the other side of it, from our application, anything that God can do, I can do. Does that make sense? Because God is living in me. So, the next one is his throne. Remember when Jesus was taken up to a high mountain when Satan was tempting him? He was in the desert for 40 days. Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. I'm just going to read Luke 4, 5-7. It says, Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Imagine that power that Satan has to be able to do that. I will give you, so Satan is talking to Jesus, Satan will give Jesus the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them. The devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them. The devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. So, Satan's throne is his dominion or right to rule over the earth. So Satan also gives the Antichrist the right to rule over all the earth. Why did all these kingdoms, the whole world, belong to Satan? How did he come to be king of this world? owner of this world. Yeah, Garden of Eden, that's it, yeah. In the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over the earth. He gave them authority over the earth. Adam and Eve were effectively given ownership or control over the world. They had the throne. They were the kings over the earth, basically. They had dominion. However, when Adam sinned, he became a slave of Satan and he forfeited the title deed of the earth to Satan. So the ownership was given over to Satan. And if you own it, you control it, right? Uh, Application for us here. Romans 6.16, it says, Do you realize that you become the slaves of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. So by obeying Satan, Adam and Eve betrayed God's trust, became Satan's slaves. And since then, because of that, all humanity has been born into bondage to Satan and sin. Satan owns us. That's a problem, right? That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. Jesus redeemed us. Okay, So this is why the Bible talks about redemption. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. The price for our freedom was his blood, his very life. There could be nothing more costly or valuable. Our salvation is free, but it's not cheap. 
So I'm going through this because this is a big theme in the book of Revelation. We've touched on it before. I'm just reminding you. So the point here is that Satan then, before the cross, had the title deed of the earth, and he could genuinely say to Jesus that it was all his, and he really did have the authority to give it to whoever he wanted to. But, fortunately, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? He bought it all back. He not only bought the field, the world, as the parable says, but he bought the treasure that was in the field, what the treasure represent? It's the people, it's us. He's not really interested in the, the rocks and the trees and stuff. He's interested in the people who live on the earth. But to get the people, he had to buy the earth. All right. He's a kinsman redeemer. So I'm going off the track here a little bit, but it's good. Book of Ruth, when Boaz redeemed the property, he also had to marry Ruth. And so for Jesus, to redeem the earth, he also has to take us as his bride. That's part of the redemption process. So, how come Jesus is not yet returned to claim the purchase possession? Because when he does, that's it. Okay, it's the second coming. There's no more chances for people who are living now. So he gives grace. He's giving us more time. He wants more people to come to repentance. That's in um, Peter. So in Revelation, this whole process of redemption starts with the rapture in chapter 4, and then Jesus takes the scroll, the title deed of the earth, from the Father in Revelation chapter 5. And then finally in Revelation chapter 6, he starts to open the seven seals, that seal, this scroll, this property deed, is the way it was done in Israel. And that begins the seven-year tribulation, and Jesus, one by one, opens the seals, and there's judgments that come as he opens the seals. That's the start of the seven years, and at the end, when all the judgments are finished, the scroll is completely open, he comes back to claim his purchased possession. But until then, Satan is still the, what does it say in Ephesians 2.2? The prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So, going back to our original verse, the Revelation 3 verse 2, the throne that Satan gives to the Antichrist is nothing less than his rule over the whole world, all the kingdoms of the world. Now, Jesus turned it down, but the Antichrist won't. He will sell his soul to Satan, and Satan will establish this man as ruler. It'll be quick. And the reason it can be so quick is only because Satan's in control. Satan has been given authority by God to do this. And it just works. It just happens. Another thing that we talked about, I just want to remind you, is that how can it be so quick? How can things move so quickly? The Antichrist becomes so established is we went through Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And at the moment, who is restraining evil? The Holy Spirit through the believers, the church. And when the believers are gone, evil is not restrained, and things can move very quickly. And that's why the Antichrist can be revealed so quickly, to take over the world so quickly. Now, the next thing that Satan gives the Antichrist is authority. All right. Now, the Greek word for authority is exousios, and means I'll put it on the screen for you so you can read it yourself. Power exercised by rulers or others in high positions by virtue of their office. It's not something that's within them. It's something that is without. It's ruling power, official power. And when it says great authority, it means great beyond anything else. He will have the power to do whatever he pleases and will also delegate his power to others. So, Do we have authority as Christians? And if we do, whose is it? We have God's authority, right? I'm going to tell you a little story, and this will help you understand what authority means, all right? Now, in Mexico, I haven't seen this one. I've seen one in France, but I haven't seen this one in Mexico. There's a statue, and around this big statue is a massive five-way roundabout. You know, roundabouts here are just 
pretty bad. But imagine a five-way roundabout with multiple lanes in Mexico. All right. Now, there's one guy, a policeman, standing in the middle, and he puts his hand up, and he blows his whistle, and everything just stops. That is authority. Can that man physically stop all those cars? If they didn't want to stop, could he stop them? No. It's just one guy. But he has the authority of the Mexican government behind him because if they don't stop, they go to jail. And you don't want to go to jail in Mexico, right? (laughs) So, that's authority. That's the difference between power and authority. Power is from within. It's my strength to do something. But authority is given from a higher power. In this case, the authority of the Antichrist is Satan's authority. The Antichrist has at his disposal all the authority of Satan. What he says goes, simple as that. Now, the believer, what authority do we have? Well, here's another illustration to help us to understand. In the Nani movie called Prince Caspian, there's this scene where the evil opposition army, the ones that are bad and evil and that, they're heading towards this bridge and they're wanting to cross. And the little girl Lucy, just a tiny kid, she's holding this little knife in her hand and all these horses and, you know, guys in armour and spears and bows and arrows, you know, they all stop. Now, why would you bother stopping when there's just a little girl on the way? Because behind the little girl is Aslan. You know, in Narnia, he represents Jesus. You know, he was killed so that Edmund could be redeemed from the wicked witch there, the white witch. Basically, Lucy was able to stop the entire army from advancing because of the authority given her from or by Jesus. Yeah? So many Christians never learn this, but we have the authority of God himself. If you learn to walk with God, to trust him, then you can raise your hand in the name of Jesus Christ and stop all the power of hell. Just as long as you are doing it in the will of God. Okay? <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who leave that part off, the doing in the will of God. They think that they can use God's authority for whatever they want in any way they want, and they use it for their own glory and honor. Now, some people, you know, they go around, I've heard people say this, I rebuke you. <laughs> no, I don't rebuke you. I can't rebuke Satan, you can't rebuke Satan, but God can. What did Michael the archangel say to Satan in Jude 9? Jude verse 9? The Lord rebuke you. He didn't bring a bunch of railing accusations against Satan. He said, instead, he came in the power of Jesus' name, of Jesus' authority. Okay? So again, I can't rebuke Satan, you can't rebuke Satan, but God can. In the name of Jesus, we have power over the enemy because we have God's authority. So, Ephesians 2, verse 6, from the Amplified Bible, says, And he raised us up together with him and made us sit down together, giving us joint seating with him in the heavenly sphere by virtue of our being in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So, do you understand what that means? Jesus is basically giving us throne rights. He's giving us his throne. You understand that? Jesus will always be the king of kings. We're never going to be God. Okay, don't get me wrong there, but we have his authority. He's blessed us with his authority. So don't let Satan boss you around. He might tempt you, but he can't force you to sin. He can't force you to do anything. He has no power over you. Why? Because we have the authority of Christ to say no. We share his power, we share his throne, okay? And I want to just read an example of what it looks like in practice. So this is Luke 10, 17-20. This is before the cross, all right? And Jesus has blessed these people with a special preview of his authority that we have, okay? When the 
72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, to Jesus, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. So, for now, let's focus on verse 19. What does it say? Look, I have given you what? How much authority? Yeah, authority over what? All the power of the enemy. Okay? Is that cool? So, again, how much authority did Jesus give them? It's over all the power of the enemy. So, this was before the cross. So, not everyone back then was given this power and authority. But today, Jesus is risen, Satan is defeated, and so all believers have that same authority. If it is God's will, then we have the authority to cast out demons and to do many other things in his name. But again, only if it's in his will for it to happen. Now, there's three main problems that I see that prevent Christians from exercising Christ's authority. Firstly, some don't even know they have the power of Christ living in them or that they have the authority of Christ given to them. And so they live in defeat. That's basically just ignorance. Secondly, some do know about this but are not walking close to God and so they don't know what his will is and therefore they never or rarely experience that power. And thirdly, there are some who simply pretend to use Christ's authority and sensationalize things, making a big deal about casting out or delivering this or, or that thing or that sickness. Okay, So that's a misuse of that authority that has been given to us. So how do we experience victory as we utilize the power and authority that God has given us? It's simple. We walk in humble obedience and fellowship and know your Bible. It's that simple. So I've got a couple of verses for us. Micah 6, 8. O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And James 4, 6-10. And he gives grace generously. That is the power to overcome, yeah? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So how do we experience his power and authority that causes the devil to flee? We have to humble ourselves before God. Now, verse 8 and 9 and 10, it tells us how to humble ourselves before God. So listen to what James is telling us about how to humble ourselves before God. It's all about repentance. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. So humility in this context is tied to repenting of our sins and turning to God. We agree that what he says is right and we are wrong and then we ask God for the strength to live the life that he has planned for us. And this is a continual process. I'm just going to put Luke 10.20 up. Do we rejoice in the fact that we have this authority and start getting proud and boastful? No, it says. But don't rejoice because the evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. So it's not about the power. It's about the relationship. If you focus on your relationship with Christ, you will naturally experience his power and authority in your life. 
But if you focus on the power and authority, then you will abuse it and not experience the reality of the living Lord inside of you. So a question for you now. How is power different from authority? So Marissa is saying one's from the inside. Which one's that? Power. And what's the outside one? The authority is your position. Okay. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, God describes us as kings and priests to himself. So how should we behave? As kings and priests. <laughs> okay. What does that mean? We faithfully represent him and we rightfully exercise his authority that he's given us. Yeah. Now, this is a personal question. The Bible tells us that the Antichrist will be totally sold out to Satan to do his will. Will I choose to be totally sold out to Jesus to follow him wherever he leads? Or will I leave parts of my life under Satan's control? It's a tough question, isn't it? We know what the answer should be, but that is what we need to repent of, yeah? Those little things, and it's a lifelong process, don't think it's going to happen all at once. <laughs> but the quicker it happens, the better it is for you, okay? Ray Comfort wrote this little book. Save yourself some pain. Save yourself some pain. If you stay as a baby Christian all your life, man, you're going to suffer, all right? But if you can grow up quick and you can stop falling prey to Satan's traps and snares and temptations and being pulled in by the world and your own desires, you'll be much better off. Okay, let's go to verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast or the Antichrist. So this is interesting. I haven't mentioned this before, but it comes up now. There's going to be an assassination attempt of the Antichrist and it will be successful. All right, at halfway point. Mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and he rises again, and all the world marvels and follows the beast. Zechariah eleven seventeen tells us that he's going to lose his right eye, and his right arm will be paralyzed. And remember that the Antichrist is a false messiah. He's a counterfeit messiah. So if he's a real messiah, then he's got to die and resurrect. So this is his counterfeit resurrection. Okay, doesn't mean he didn't literally die. Remember, he's got Satan's power. Satan can do that. Apparently, okay? I'm not saying I understand all this stuff. Satan raising people from the dead. But we do know that at the very least, Satan is indwelling this body, even if it's just a corpse. And he goes on to the end of the tribulation. Imagine you're reading the news, right? If this was a big thing happened in the world, it would be in the newspapers, right? So if you go on a little bit, it uses this event of the Antichrist being killed and rising again, okay, as something that's very important, has a major influence on the people of the world. So I've got Revelation chapter 13, verses 12 and 14 up there, and it says, And he, the false prophet, exercises all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it, to worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. In verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, the Antichrist, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast, the Antichrist, who was wounded by the sword and lived. Zechariah said it would be by the sword. Revelation tells us again it will be by the sword. This is going to be something that the Antichrist will use to deceive many people and cause many people to think that he really is the Messiah. All right, verse 4. It says, So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? <laughs> what are they afraid of? 
Satan, they're afraid of war. They don't want to fight against him. Yes, they're afraid of Satan, afraid of Antichrist. And so instead of fighting him, they worship him. Now, application for us today, but isn't that true even for Christians today? Either we fight against Satan, fight against our sinful nature, fight against the desires of the world, or we end up worshipping Satan, we end up worshipping our sinful nature, worshipping the influence of this world. Okay. To worship, going back to Abraham and Isaac, the first time it's used in the scriptures, worship means that Abraham submitted to God and was obedient to God. Okay, that's the principle of first mention. So to worship someone means to submit to them and to honor and obey them. They are our choices. There's no middle ground. We either fight Satan and defeat him or we submit to him and we become his slaves. We're worshiping him. We're submitting to him. So during the tribulation, the world will be worshiping Satan. They will also be worshiping the Antichrist because he is a physical, visible representation of Satan. So, you don't want to be in the tribulation. You won't be facing just a human being. You'll be facing a person, a human, possessed by Satan himself. He will be like superhuman and really, really deceptive. Okay, He'll be able to mesmerize people. Many people think that Satan's going to come as ugly and frightening, but no. God made him as the most beautiful creature that he ever made. He was a top angel. He has a certain beauty that can mesmerize unbelievers. He can even dazzle believers out of fellowship. He comes as an angel of light. Remember, he's deceptive. In verse 5, And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. How many days? 1,260 years. So aside from Jesus, there will never be a person with such a mouth, such a gift of the gap. <laughs> Someone who would seem so wise, so compassionate, so humble, so powerful, with such passion, with such amazing solutions to problems. I mean, he's going to be able to negotiate with people who hate each other because he will have such brilliance. And being Satan, he will have superhuman knowledge of what both are thinking, what they both want. He knows our human natures very well. And therefore, he'll be able to convince anybody of anything, to do anything. And according to Revelation 6, 1 and 2, and other verses, the Antichrist will rise to power by war or by peace? Peace, yeah. He will most likely initially bring economic prosperity. He will seem to have the answers to many of the seemingly unsolvable questions that mankind faces today. This is just my opinion. He'll probably be saying something like this. I have come to show you how the human nature has the power to do or achieve anything. You don't need God. He isn't real. Those antiquated beliefs have held up human progress for far too long. If you want to have peace and prosperity, then you need to leave all those things behind. Destroy all those Bibles and the other books that sprout this nonsense and kill those who believe it. They are stopping the rest of humanity from reaching their true potential. You don't need God, and he doesn't exist anyway. I'm just making that up, but that's the kind of propaganda that I reckon Satan will be, or the Antichrist will be spurting out, you know. He's given authority to continue 42 months. Who's the authority from? It's given to Satan, but who's it from? Who gave Satan this authority to continue this long? God. Yeah, so who's ultimately in control? God. Okay. So Satan gives his authority to the Antichrist, but for Satan to actually do this, he's just an angel. God could wipe him out in a split second, but he doesn't. He's got a purpose for this. Verse 6, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. <laughs> so this tells us what Satan and the Antichrist will be blaspheming mocking or putting down. Firstly, it's God's name and his character. The tabernacle is where God dwells. And those who put their trust in God and who are now in heaven. And who's that? 
Who's in heaven with God at this time after the rapture? Yeah, Jesus is there after the rapture. Us, yeah, we're there. So I think this is saying that one of the first things that the Antichrist will have to do is explain just what happened to all those people who disappeared. He's going to give God a bad name as well as those who believe in him as well as where he lives, yeah? Maybe the aliens took them. I don't know what he's going to say. But he's going to blaspheme them. He's going to blaspheme us. I reckon he's going to say something like, only the good people are left, all the evil people are taken. The strong ones are left, the weak were taken. So verse 6, and it says, those who dwell in heaven. So I'm going to contrast now to finish off the two phrases, and those who dwell in heaven and those who dwell on the earth and explain what the book of life of the Lamb and the book of life are. So I'll put up Revelation 13 verse 8. All who dwell on the earth. Now what do they do? The people who dwell in heaven are saved, they're worshipping God. But in verse 8, those who dwell on the earth, unbelievers, how are they described? Who are they worshipping? The Antichrist. And are their names written in the book of life of the Lamb? No. Okay. So those who dwell in heaven are those who are saved, who have their name written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. However, the other group you can belong to is those who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So, this is the contrast, this is the choice. It's heaven or earth, your name written in the Lamb's book of life, or not written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, to dwell in means to settle down in, to be at home in. If you're at home in the world, then the world is your home, and you will go the way of the world, so to speak, right? But if you are at home in heaven, if heaven is where you're comfortable and you're not comfortable down here, does that make sense? We can be in this world but not of this world. We don't want to be comfortable here. This world is not our home. The Bible says that. Where's our citizenship? In heaven. And Hebrews tells us to keep our eyes on the eternal and not the temporary stuff. And you can do this yourself. Those who dwell on the earth, that phrase is used seven times in the book of Revelation, and each time it says something new about them. But just remember that they're all unbelievers. Now, these two books, just to finish off, there's two books that the Bible talks about. There's one book, the book of life, and there's another book, it's called the book of life of the Lamb. The book of life, I'll just explain it, then I'll read the verses contains everybody's name in it, or did contain everyone's name in it. So if you go back to before God created the world, everybody's name would be in this book of life. Okay? Because God knew, or God knows, who is going to be born and live, right? So at the same time, before anyone has been created, before anyone's made any choices, in the book of life of the Lamb, it's empty because no one's made a choice to receive him as their saviour. Does that make sense? All right. So let's read these verses and see if we can make some sense out of this. Revelation 3 verse 5. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase, notice that word there, I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. And then 13 verse 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. Can you see the difference there? With one book, your name can be erased, and the other book, your name can be written. Make sense? And in 17 verse 8, 
And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That's a scary one. Because these are the people who have taken the mark of the beast. And once you take the mark of the beast, what happens? You lose any opportunity to repent. When you take the mark of the beast, it appears from this verse that your name is scrubbed out of the book of life. This is not the book of life of the Lamb. This is the book of life. And Revelation 20.15, And anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. So think of it this way. There's an election coming up, right? If you're alive and you're over a certain age, then you're eligible to vote, and your name is on the roll. But what happens when you die? He gets crossed off, yeah? You're dead. He's crossed off. But what happens with the book of life of the Lamb? It's not pre-filled. It started empty, and each person's name is entered into the book of life of the Lamb when they come to put their faith in Jesus' saving work. So his substitutionary sacrifice, his dying in my place, and your place on the cross for all the sins of the world. We trust that, and our name goes into the book of life of the Lamb, and it never gets taken out of the book of life. Okay, So we're always safe from that judgment. So question. Before God created Adam and Eve, which names were written in the book of life? Everyone's. Good, yeah. All right. Before God created Adam and Eve, which names were written in the book of life of the Lamb? No one. So eventually, at the end of all the ages, all the names written in both books will be the same. Why is that? So if you're not a believer, your name is scrubbed off the original list, the Book of Life. And if you're a believer, it stays on that one, plus your name is written on the Book of Life of the Lamb. So you're in both books, yeah? You're in the good books. (laughs) You want to be in the good books, yeah? In God's good books. That's a good way of saying it. You can be in God's good books. Someone put it this way, God has a dual bookkeeping system. When you believe, your name goes into the book of life of the Lamb. And when you die without believing, your name is blotted out from the book of life. And it's never written into the book of life of the Lamb. So there's one choice that we must make which will affect where we go for all eternity. And that is, will I believe in Jesus? Just to finish by reading John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21. It says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And going on it says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then it goes on to describe the condemnation is because they love sin more than they love Jesus, okay? Their sin, the pleasure of sin is more important than their eternal life. Father, I just thank you for what you've shown us today. Lord, I thank you that we can be confident of eternal life because we know that our names will never be scrubbed out or rubbed out or blotted out of the book of life. And we also know that if we are truly saved, then our names are in the book of life of the Lamb. We are in your family, Lord. We're in the books. And we're written down. And I believe once they're written down, they can't be rubbed out. So, Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you will continue to give us this confidence that we have in you because you've given us at least two things. You've given us your authority. We have all your power behind us. And you've also given us your power, and that is a power within. 
to overcome sin, Lord, resist temptation, to walk in faith, to love unconditionally, to be able to forgive. All those things, Father. It's ours if we're walking with you and if we're living according to your will. So help us to do that, Father. We also have your throne, Lord, the authority that comes from ruling and reigning with you. So we thank you for all these things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.